Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson, coming to you from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas in beautiful downtown December, Washington, D.C. Congress has its end game for the year, I think, in sight, which means it's the end of the quarter, which means it's Melman quarterly slide deck time. No better time to look ahead to 2022. I'm dubbing next year the double deuce. And no better way to do it than with my colleague here at the firm, our founder, Bruce Melman. Bruce puts together a slide deck each quarter, reviewing trends in business and politics. It's much read and relied upon. From heralding our new Gilded Age to asking what black swan events were on the horizon just months before the pandemic began, he's prescient, and I'm really glad he's here. Bruce Melman, welcome to 14th and G. Thanks a lot, Dean. Always great to be with you. Well, Bruce, the title of this quarter's slide deck is Living in Limbo. Uh, you're not talking about the dance. Uh, you're talking about the state of mind, the state of affairs of the world we live in. Uh, it is in limbo. We're in between a lot of things, it seems like. What's the basic thesis of this quarter's slide deck? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really learning to live in limbo. You know, part of the goal of the deck is to offer uh, our perspective on the top risks that business leaders face in politics and policy in 2022. And in some ways, the biggest single risk may be uh, this extreme expectations that we all now have. And so if you're an investor, you're basically given two options. It's going to be the 1970s stagflation or the 1990s boom. If we're talking about COVID, it's either the Andromeda strain and we're all dead with Omicron or it's magically going away. It's kind of the new light flu. Now, with Congress, every election is a Flight 93 election. The world's not that extreme. It's not that polarized. The reality is there'll be things about the economy that are good and things that are going to struggle that, you know, that we're going to have to learn with what is actually an endemic disease, you know, that Congress is going to need to muddle along. And so having folks able to set expectations, there are a lot of risks, but it's probably not end of the world or uh, glory days. Yeah, I mean, I'll get even a little more basic with you. It's, I mean, we're both white collar professionals in, in in a client services business, and you feel the limbo. You 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 want to know how the world is, how the new world is going to operate. I, you know, we I gave up quite some time ago that life would ever be the way it was two years ago. It's going to be different, but we don't know in what ways. Uh, and I, I think you see that across politics, across the economy. It's it's all of this uncertainty with what the new normal is going to be. You're right. And in trying to uh, help people plot a course through the uncertainty, the best advice seems to be don't assume it's either zero or 100. You know, the, the sense of intensity has been turned to 11 by the media, certainly since the arrival on the scene of President Trump and continuing in through the pandemic. You know, but reality is it's a lesser level intensity, a lot of challenges, a lot of uncertainty, but it's this overreaction in politics and government and markets that in some ways is the biggest risk itself. Yeah, I mean, you know, the modern world comes to a stop on a dime. And it's I think it's a natural human tendency to assume, well, you know, the whole world's going to end. I'll tell you what, I'll buy into your lessening intensity. I want to address one issue that you that you talk about in, um, in these extreme expectations. But it seems to me, as if you look ahead to 2022, there are two flashpoints on the horizon with potential uh, to be something 
beyond anything we've seen in the post-World War II era, maybe excepting Korea and Vietnam, but that's Russia, Ukraine, and China, Taiwan. There's uh, both China and Russia are increasingly belligerent with, with these territories that they claim outright, or we know claim to themselves that they're part of their own nations. But uh, what, Bruce, what do you see there? Is, is this just more saber rattling like we're accustomed to over the past decade, or this really has potential to blow up in a bad way? Well, so first we should acknowledge, Dean, neither you nor I are, are genuine geopolitical experts. That said, if your listeners are planning their honeymoon, I think uh, Taipei is probably a lot safer than Kiev. So first, uh, I, on, on the China-Taiwan, I mean, without a doubt, the Chinese Communist Party has claimed Taiwan from day one. And, and uh, I think there are very good reasons to be worried about whether it's the Chinese Communist Party and their global aspirations of President Xi. I don't think they're going to invade. I don't think they're waiting for the Olympics to end. Uh, it, it may be a plan in the medium or long term, but I don't. Uh, some experts say it's imminent. Other experts say it's not. That one, it's just, it's hard to kind of go through in one's mind. If you think about the movie War Games, it's hard to figure out how that works out well for them because it clearly creates a level of sanctions where they get cut off from the rest of the global economy, China does. They don't win. It's not like people are going to say, ah, well, by contrast, I think Vladimir Putin, if he actually goes into Ukraine, his theory is good luck without Russian natural gas and energy, Europe, in this cold winter that's coming. That's why Nord Stream 2. I mean, everybody knows Putin is a very bad dude. And yet the Germans were cutting the deal on Nord Stream 2 because they need energy. The, the Greens in Europe have said, we want fewer fossil fuels. We'll just import it from people that we can then scorn for being bad on climate. But that's truly strengthened uh, Putin's hand. There already are a lot of sanctions vis-a-vis -vis Russia. So the Russian downside seems lower and Russia's ability to exact pain in the reverse direction seems higher than, uh, than to me, China and Taiwan. I get they want it. I just don't think the price is worth it for them. It seems like yeah. time is smarter. It's it's playing into something, uh, you know, the, the President Biden is dealing with uh, this this sort of soft image on foreign policy. His his foreign policy cred really started to unravel after Afghanistan. A diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics, not an athletic boycott, uh, some sort of deal it appears they're trying to broker with the Ukrainians to pay a little more lip service to Russia's, Russia's authority uh, over Crimea. You know, it's it's not maybe it's not outright appeasement, but it's not a show of American strength. Well, and what you highlight there for sure is the risk for the president is this kind of perceived softness. And his opponents, as we both have seen, have have long tried to harp on age or or, uh, or or other things there. But right now, the, and you've run campaigns, Dean, the Republican ad would seem to, uh, to write itself, soft on the border, you know, historic levels of migration, migrant encounters, soft on inflation, highest since the early 1980s, soft on crime, where the number in 21 is up on over on 20, soft on foreign policy. I mean, uh, you could cut that ad. Bruce, you touched on inflation. The consumer price index numbers came out on Friday, the highest since Olivia Newton-John's physical topped the charts. Do you know what year that was? I'm going with 1982, but it's sad that I remember that. <laughs> you nailed it. You nailed it. I loved it, Olivia Newton-John. Uh, she was the best. Bruce, you got a Fed chair that uh, seems a bit unleashed here in Jay Powell being renominated uh, for another term as, as chair of the Fed. 
uh, signaling a, a tighter money supply. That means that means drying up a lot of these bond and asset purchases that the Fed's been doing, at least slowing the rate of their growth. Certainly higher interest rates are on the forecast. What's going on here and, and how's what can the administration do to address it? Well, look, we've been reading and watching this debate at the Fed uh, among all the economics writers, certainly in the administration. Is inflation a short-term situation as a result of COVID that will fix itself as supply chains get back to a, a, a more normal uh, or is it, uh, is it a more permanent situation, particularly led by the labor market and the energy market, but also you could add in logistics, there's going to be a greater expectation that costs and prices are going to rise, that all that global debt that was just added is going to force up interest rates and force up prices. Inflation is a killer. It's a killer of economies. It's, it's a killer of governments. If indeed it's long-term, that's a big problem. It's not been, by the way, we should know. People were talking when when you were up working on the Hill as Senate chief and, they, and, the, and the Obama administration passed a $787 billion deal. Remember back when that was a lot of money? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> everybody said inflation is going to go crazy. And instead, inflation didn't budge. Part of it is the broader change of and you see it really through supply chains. It was all disinflationary tailwind, accelerating cross-border data flows, accelerating U.S.-China engagement. Um, prioritizing efficiency, so outsourcing and such. More in the, the, the labor market led by China was adding more and more capacity all around the world. Even post-COVID, China's labor market is now shrinking and the amount that the workers there are paid is a lot higher than it was 11 years ago. People, supply chains are prioritizing resilience and domestic capability and things like semiconductors. That'll make costs go up. We're decoupling from China. That'll make costs go up. They're increasing regulations against cross-border data flow, or at least making it more expensive. That'll make costs go up. If inflation's here to stay, that is seismic, uh, both in domestic politics, but but frankly, you know, that's what leads. That's what right. has led to the fall of regimes and empires. Right. I mean, we're we're seeing thirty and forty year records on inflation numbers because we have not had meaningful inflation in in nearly three decades. And and the you talk about China decoupling all of these disinflationary pressures of global supply chains. And, you know, we're, we're bad for specific industries, uh, but they were really good for prices. I was really struck by, I think we were talking earlier about the Wall Street Journal NBC poll out last week and the economy. Americans say the economy is headed in the wrong direction, 61% to 30%. It's at odds with a financial press that you know, where a stock market continually sets records. But even with the story about part of inflation is wage inflation. Is this really pessimistic view of the economy? You think it's rooted simply in inflation or is, is it more sort of a general sourness of the mood? I think it's rooted in inequality, Dean. I'd say it wow. goes back two decades. Particularly, it got accelerated with the great financial collapse. And one of the things that you learn in Econ 101 and 102, and you and I picked up in Republican uh, school, you know, day three about why tax cuts are good, was the, the broad notion that a rising tide lifts all boats. And I think a challenge that we found and find is in the tech-enabled global economy, you can raise the GDP of a nation and only benefit 10% of the nation uh, actual personal economic. We'd seen wages finally starting to budge for the lowest earners right before the pandemic, and they continue to be the wages, thankfully, here that, that, that go forward. Give Congress some credit for some of the relief packages that they did. But, 
But writ large, people have felt shitty about the economy for 20 years. And the reason they have, I think, (laughs) is because the gains are really concentrated and the pain is really diffuse. It's a problem. Well, all of it, Bruce, is going to be reflected next year when the voters have their chance at a say. It's, It's never too early to speculate about the midterm elections, one of my favorites. And, you know... Republicans have got a real feeling, a real wind at their back, a very small margin in the House. They need to flip to take the Speaker's gavel back. Uh, the Senate, uh, as we all know, is split 50-50. You're seeing now uh, Republicans setting records on the generic ballot. That is, will you generically vote for Republican or Democrat for Congress? Republicans never lead that ballot. And I think they're up between three and four points on it right now. The president's approval rating continues to sink like a stone, particularly in these swing states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, uh, where Democrats are going to have to flip Republican seats to have a chance at holding on to the Senate. What do you see here? Is this uh, we got a we got a wave coming? Oh, look, there's definitely a wave. I mean, you could also add in the history of midterm electorate elections and electorates vote against the party holding the White House. And go back to Virginia, as we were talking about, how do you explain what happened in Virginia? The easiest explanation, the Occam's razor explanation, is that 11 of the last 12 uh, times the Virginia electorate in the year after a presidential election voted against the party that held the White House. Right Here, since World War II, only twice in 1998 and then after 9-11 in 2002, has the party holding the White House gained seats. I think the House Dems are done. I just can't. The only issue that theoretically could save them is if the Supreme Court totally flips Roe v. Wade and somehow this becomes an election all about abortion rights and Roe v. Wade. The Senate is is tougher because, as you know, there's both history and geography, and, and it depends which seats are up when. It's a 50-50 Senate right now. I turn to you, Dean, as I think about the Senate. We should have picked the Senate up. We, the Republican Party, in 2010. And the Republican Party probably should have picked up seats in 2012. And they didn't because the Tea Party energy caused the far less electable candidates to win the primary. And then Mitch McConnell said, all right, we're done with this. Right. And he, with a very firm hand, made sure the most electable candidates were the nominees in 2014, and they picked it all up. As I look at 2022, the biggest single question for the Republicans' ability to pick it up is what's going to matter most, electability or fealty to Trump and and his uh, fantasy about what happened in the 2020 election? Well, it's an open question, right? Just look at my home state of North Carolina. Trump has pulled uh, former Congressman Mark Walker out of a three-way primary with former Governor Pat McCrory and current Congressman Ted Budd to give, uh, he's endorsed Ted Budd. He pulled uh, he pulled Walker out of the primary, endorsed him in a House race so that Budd would have a clear shot against McCrory, who seems to be getting you know more establishment support. Doing the same thing in Georgia. That's the question, Bruce. Herschel Walker, J.D. Vance, Doctor Oz in Pennsylvania. You know, are these sort of look these sort of out of? I mean, Trump is an out of left field political candidate in and of himself. We don't yet know one the extent of Trump's influence in a general election. We know what his influence is in a primary. Uh, it's dominating. But what's uh, Georgia went the wrong way twice. We have two Democratic incumbent senators from the state of Georgia. Can Herschel Walker, who is going to be the nominee, can he unseat Senator uh, the incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock? Yeah, look, it, I, uh, I asked the question. I turned the table on you, my friend, and, and uh, you, haven't, you haven't given me greater insight. I thought you were going to give me the 
don't worry, Mitch has got it, and he's going to figure out a way to uh, to pull it off. You know, in well, some but ways- Bruce, he doesn't because he yes, after twenty ten, the the NRSC led by uh, led by the Republican leader got more in, tried to get more into the candidate selection process. What they more the lesson really was the Dick Luger race in Indiana. Uh, where they did not sufficiently protect incumbents. In my view, because he recognizes the limits of his power, uh, it, this is much more an incumbent protection operation than it is than it is trying to pick in open seats. And Republicans have got a lot of open seats, got retirements in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Ohio. Uh, we still don't know what Senator Johnson is going to do in Wisconsin. You know, th- these are open seats where his the NRC's power to to do candidate selection is um, much weaker than it is to protect an existing incumbent Republican. Well, look, you're right, but I was joking around with Matt Lewis. I mean, this seems like a, maybe you should become the political version of Jeff Foxworthy to talk about, you know, uh, it's like, instead of you may be a redneck, if you, (laughs) you know, if you take a beer to work, it may be, uh, you may be an unelectable candidate. So think about who the Republicans in the Tea Party onward era have put forward, like in Delaware, Christine O'Donnell. You know, you may be unelectable if you have to run an ad that says you're not a witch. Yes. You know, you may be an unelectable candidate if you're banned from going to the mall. Uh, you may be an unelectable <laughs> candidate if you've used the phrase legitimate rape publicly or even privately. These were truly incompetent candidates. You know, they I, I'll say, you know, the Todd Akins, the Christine O'Donnells, the Sharon Angles. They were just incompetent. They were incompetent at running statewide campaigns. What we're dealing with here is something I think a little different, and it's a different era. You know, these are these are, but these are you know these are very red states, so like Georgia, and we'll just have to see. Bruce, how about one of your last categories in the slide deck is uh, is business risk? We've really got a obviously from the transfer from Trump to Biden, you've got a much more activist government. Uh, seems to be led. I'm I'm looking at the Federal Trade Commission, uh, FTC Chair Lena Khan. <laughs> they removed the unduly burdensome the language from the FTC mission statement that they wouldn't be unduly burdensome to American business. That's been struck. Uh, that's a rhetorical flourish for for an FTC that's really gotten pretty activist. What other business risks do you see? Well, look, you're right. Uh, Democrats, as they always have advertised, believe that government matters. They believe in the power of government. They believe in an activist government. That was uh, that was arguably less so in the Trump era. So you're seeing an activist bureaucracy returning. Um, because the Biden administration was so focused on legislation over this past year with you know three trillion dollar packages, two passed and one the, in the red zone near the goal line, the giant legislative elements are, are more or less done. And now they're going to get to implement it, regulating a lot of oversight, a lot of enforcement for the next three years, sort of phone and, te- phone and pen 2.0. Number one, business is going to need to uh, follow very closely and engage very uh, meaningfully with agencies from SEC to FTC to CFPB, IRS, and, you know, it's alphabet soup. Uh, number two, as we talked about, we're, we've been in, and we put a deck on this years ago out on, it's called D-Global, but we're in an era of rising nationalism and shrinking multinationalism. And uh, yeah, there has been some cooperation that the administration has led and is trying to lead uh, in various fields, but but the core of it is a U.S. and West decoupling from China, especially around tech 
That's a big risk for business. Uh, third risk of the four that we identified are that businesses, you know, big business increasingly finds itself under the gun with Republican critics, Democratic critics, and bipartisan critics. And then finally, and we can talk about that, or uh, brands remain under a lot of pressure to, uh, to speak out on issues beyond the obvious business issues. And that sort of pressure is not going away. The CEO's challenge. I want woke politics to reflect my Gen Z workforce. Uh, I want to be in bed with China. I want access to the market without referencing the genocide. And oh yeah, I'd like an eight-figure comp package. <laughs> is that your is that your average American CEO? Well, uh, no, I don't think so. On behalf of the people who pay the people who pay us, uh, in uh, you know every client. Look, th- those are the criticisms. I don't think they're fair. You know, some right of center would say they're being woke. Others would say, no, we're extending, you know, benefits, for example, to all of our workforce and the people that they love and that they're married to. And you and I would do it if we were CEOs, too. Now, if they go and give a speech about how how awesome they are at Davos, that's where they kind of get in trouble. You know, and likewise, a CEO comp is, is set by board compensation committees. And you don't have to pay your CEO a lot, but you may not have the CEO that you, is, that you might want the most. And even with China, look, it's a global economy. And for decades, the United States was advancing trade policy uh, that encouraged global engagement by U.S. businesses. And now they're shocked, shocked to find gambling in the casino. No, uh, you, make, you make some really fair points. It's, um, you know, th- this is this is a very challenging time to lead any organization, uh, much less uh, much less a multinational company. Well, Bruce, what, if any of these risks, do you see as the most dominant uh, early in the year. And then I'll ask you, uh, despite all this, when it comes to the United States, you remain an optimist or are you turning into a pessimist? You know, so I was and remain an optimist uh, at the medium and the long term. Uh, short term, I'm scared to death. But, uh, but, but look, the U.S. has gone through periods like this before, as have the world. And the U.S. always, you just go back and you read about the 70s and the 60s. You could read about you know, the 20s and 30s, uh, America goes through these periods where we're pretty sure the, you know, it's a republic, if you can keep it, was prescient because we can't. And we and our economics are broken and our politics are broken. And we always find a way to fix it. It's messy. At the given moment, we always yearn for a prior period. And the best advice is always go read contemporary books from the prior period that you yearn for. And you realize it, was, it sucked. Like, these were really tough. Right. As for the biggest risk... I still, and I'll end where I started. The biggest risk, and I I think a lot of this is media driven, is our inability to see things in a non-Manichaean light. So everything is good versus evil. Everything is, you know, extreme. Everything is uh, end of days or glory days. And the true reality of the operating environment for businesses, for government, is we're going to have to muddle through, you know, the climate is getting tougher, but the planet is not going to have day after tomorrow, tomorrow. Right. Um, but, the, but it's also, that doesn't mean that the climate's, you know, in a, in a good way. So we're going to have to come up with ways that we can work across the aisle, ways that, that businesses can be uh, better on climate without saying they've got to totally give everything up. And all of that starts with our collective ability to have a shared set of reality. And once we agree on, okay, here's what reality is, then we can start figuring out how to address it. But your reality is usually very different than mine. Yours is either at zero 
or at 100. And mine is the opposite of yours. It's such good counsel, Bruce. Avoid the hubris of the present moment. War, depression, for all our technology and all of our prosperity. When it comes to the human condition, there is truly nothing new under the sun. And that will remain the same until the robots take over. Bruce Melman, <laughs> the quarterly slide deck is out. Thank you for joining me on 14th and G. Always great to be here with you, buddy. 